Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, so appreciate Advent season and uh, just remembering the coming of Christ. And this year, as we're doing these Advent reasons, uh, readings, I want you to understand that those are the normal readings that we do for the Christmas stroll. Uh, sadly, we're not able to do that this year, but we said, you know what, those are great readings, and we're going to make sure that we still read them in church. Uh, so thank you to all who participated in that. Well, I, I'm sure you're wondering what we're going to be talking about with Christmas on lockdown. Now, let's begin by thinking about it in this way. Fifty years from now, I think people are going to look at the year 2020 and say that there was a lot of peculiarity about this year. They'll look back at pictures of the airports being empty, the videos of preachers preaching to empty rooms, and think to themselves, how odd. I'm sure that they'll look at some of the tragedy and say, how sad. People going into the hospital unable to be visited by family members at bedside. Tens of millions of people being laid off from work in an economic downturn. There will probably also be things that for them are normal, but to us seem odd. For example, maybe 50 years from now, it will not be atypical for people to wear masks during cold and flu season. Now, I say all of this to say that history has a way of clarifying our thinking. If we simply experience life in the moment, then uh, we really wouldn't have much perspective. If people 50 years from now didn't think about our situation and they just simply looked at the pictures, they probably would be clueless as to what we were going through. Well, we do well to appreciate history in our own day as well. You know, just as 50 years is going to add unique perspective to this season of lockdown, think about the perspective that we have in the life, legacy, and impact of Jesus some 2,000 years after he was born. You know, I think that it has changed the world. <laughs> There's no denying it. We are living in the year 2020, and every December 25th, what do we do? We celebrate Jesus' birth. We commemorate it. But over the last couple decades, one trend has been, been alarming me. And the trend is this, that people seem to want to put Jesus' coming on lockdown. And, and in putting Jesus' coming on lockdown, what I would say is they're putting Christmas on lockdown. People think things like, you know, this holiday season, it's really about the people, it's about the food, the festivities, the coming together. Why do we need to talk so much about this Jesus person? Why worry about him? But my question is, we think of putting Jesus on lockdown or Christmas on lockdown, is what do we lose if we fully go down that road? What did Jesus' birth bring into the world that we would not otherwise have had he not come? Uh, my friend Ben Gabal made a great point. We were discussing the Western influence, the Christian influence upon the world. And one point he said that I'll never forget, he said, people want the effects of Christianity, or you could say the effects of Christmas, without the cause. 
Now, that is an important statement. We want all the benefits that Christianity has brought into the world without acknowledging the Lord who brought them. So let's think about one of those effects. One of my favorite uh, stories, children's stories, is Horton Hears a Who. And, you know, the, the line I love from it is the line that we all remember, a person's a person no matter how small. Now, doesn't that just ring true to the ear? You, you hear a statement like that today, and no one argues with that and says, that's not true. No, we look at that and we say, that's absolutely right. A person's a person, no matter how insignificant they might seem to us, no matter how unuseful they might seem to us. No, a person's a person, no matter their stature. Now, the man who wrote the book, Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, he wrote the book after a tour in Japan in 1953. It was an eye-opening journey for the author. You see, previous to this journey, he had been using his gifts as a cartoonist to help advance the American cause and the Allied cause in World War II. He was an ardent supporter of FDR, and he was diametrically opposed to those Axis allies, those fascists, such as Germany, Italy, and Japan. Now, in his cartoon drawing and his propaganda, if you will, he crossed a line. He started treating the Japanese in his pictures as being subhuman. And if you know anything about history during this time, the Japanese were treated in that way in our country. They were placed in internment camps and really marginalized in significant ways. Well, Geisel, when he came back or took a trip to Japan, he, he had met survivors who were devastated by Hiroshima, Nagasaki, tens of thousands of people affected. And as he had human interactions with these people, something changed inside of the man. He saw humanity in that which he had previously considered subhuman. And so, when he returned to America, Geisel decided that he needed to apologize in the best way he knew how to. He wrote a children's book called Horton Hears a Who, and the main message of the book is a person's a person no matter how small. You see, what I'm trying to say to you today is that people matter. I can say that statement just about anywhere, and universally that statement is accepted. At least today it is. Has it always been universally accepted? Well, let's take a trip back in time. I want to go to the time of Jesus' birth, where somewhere now in the neighborhood, scholars would say 6 B.C., it could be as late as 4 B.C. We, we dated around Herod the Great's life and death. And instead of doing what we traditionally do for Christmas, I want to actually leave the manger scene in Bethlehem and go to the largest city in the world at that time, which was Rome, the epicenter of the world, the known world. Now, what was life like for people 
in the epicenter of the world? Well, the answer is pretty miserable. Christian uh, historian Rodney Stark notes of this time period, what were larger cities in those days were very small by today's standards. Even so, they were far more crowded, crime-infested, filthy, disease-ridden, and miserable than even our worst cities today. For one thing, the population density was a huge problem. If you go to a city like Rome, I mean, it was just covered with people, 302 people for every acre of land. Uh, think of that in correlation with some of our biggest cities like Kolkata, India. 122 people, and we consider that a very crowded city. Or our city, Manhattan, 100 people per acre. If you want to get some kind of idea of what this must have been like, think of how, packed, how it feels to be on a packed beach in the middle of summer and live all of your life like that. Incredibly populated, incredibly dense. Now, you can imagine how things could go quite wrong in that kind of situation. Crime, but also something that we're dealing with right now, disease. And also a regular feature of their life was death. Not so much care for the dead, but certainly experiencing a lot of human death. So in Jesus' time, people lived miserable existences and no one really cared. It had a lot to do with their religious philosophy, their system, paganism. Uh, they looked at their gods and their gods were not moral examples. They did not set good examples at all, and they really did not care about the life and well-being of people. And so if that's their religious system, then you can imagine that the political leaders and also the priestly caste really didn't put that much time or emphasis or thought into the little people. In fact, later in history, Emperor Julian was urging the priests to care for the poor, but because they had no doctrine or tradition which would uphold such a practice, they just simply wrote them off and said, why would we do such a thing? We have bigger fish to fry. And they moved on. Well, if circumstances were bad for city dwellers in general, they were intensely worse for women and babies. You see, there was a practice of exposure. What they would do is they would take an unwanted child and lay the child out in the elements, and simply move on. And what was worse about this practice is they were really selective. They kept mainly males. They would expose little girls all the time. Uh, I, I read a love letter from a husband. He was away at work, and he was writing to his pregnant wife, and he said this to her, if good luck to you, you should bear offspring. If it is male, let it live. If it is female, expose it. In fact, the best estimate is that there were 140 males per 100 females in greater Italy. Now, we know as you look at that ratio, it's supposed to be about 50-50. There is a significant problem here. Even larger families with multiple children tended to only have one daughter in all of the household. You know, women were treated as subhuman. They could be divorced without grounds or provision, and many of them were 
child brides when they were married. The Cambridge historian Keith Hopkins shared of several famous Roman women in this historical period. And listen to how old they were when they were married. Octavia, daughter of Emperor Claudius, married at age 11. Nero's mother, Agrippa, married at age 12. Quintilian, he's a famed speaker, rhetorician during this period. His wife that he married was likely around the age of 12, and we know this because she bore his first child at the age of 13. Human dignity? What is that? Human rights? Never heard of them in Jesus' day. In fact, you just kind of went with life and you played with the deck of cards that the gods handed you. There's no sense of complaining about it. And I've got to tell you, I could tell you much more about 5 BC. I'm just telling you, I'm just scratching the surface on these things. There's much, much more to tell. But the big question we need to be asking ourselves as we think about this is, how do we move from the Roman perspective that people do not matter to then reading a child's story by, written by Gazelle that says, a person's a person no matter how small? Now, our problem is, as Ben suggested, that people want to keep the effects without acknowledging the cause. They want to put Christmas on lockdown. They're like the atheist, and I love this story, who climbed a mountain way up. He ascended to some 10,000 feet, and as he was at the summit, he slipped and he fell. Now, beneath him was some 10,000 feet of space, and by good fortune, he was able to reach out his hand and, and grab a shrub, and he was holding on for dear life, and as he was holding on to this shrub, straining against his own body weight, hearing the crack of the shrub not holding well against his body weight, he looks up and he cries out for dear life, if there's anyone up there, someone help me. And then a rich baritone voice penetrates through the crowd, clouds. I am God, and I am here, and I'm willing to help you. The only thing that I need you to do is exercise some faith, let go of the shrub. Well, the atheist looks down at the ground beneath him, still holding on to the shrub, and then he looks up and he cries out again, is there anyone else up there who can help me? Well, friends, while many people wholeheartedly agree that people matter, they're unsurprisingly unable to agree as to why the claims are true. They're unable to develop any shared vision of human nature or the human person on which any of these claims could be based, and I hope you understand why that could be a problem. Uh, Christian historian Timothy Shaw makes a strong point, and a point that should cause us to pause before we put Christmas on lockdown. He says, apart from the Christian scriptures, classical civilization lacked the concept of human dignity. And I think I just illustrated that through Roman society. He continues, granted there are traces of this concept in other religions, such as Islam and Judaism, 
There are glimpses of human dignity to be found in the philosophers such as Kant and, and Locke, but those traces are only filled out in full by the Christian gospel. And those glimpses found in the philosophers or other religions are mere signposts of Christ's exalted view of humanity. So here's my point. I am arguing this morning that you cannot arrive at the exalted view of human dignity that we have today. And I'm also arguing that you cannot maintain the exalted view of human dignity we have today if you put Jesus on lockdown. Because this humanity which we know and and appreciate and seem to commonly value, this gift of humanity only comes to us because Jesus was born and Jesus disseminated a message and that message went out through his people called Christians. Now let's take a look at some of the scriptures where this view of human dignity comes from. And again, we can look at these scriptures and say these are Old Testament scriptures, Hebrew scriptures, but they only became broadly accepted and appreciated when Christians advanced the cause of them. Genesis 1.21 or 27, this is the foundation of it all. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, He created him, male and female, he created them. So the Bible is telling us, in the very first chapter, the very first, that people, no matter our gender, no matter our race or ethnicity, no matter our abilities or capabilities, have a derived value. Our value comes from God. Theologian Anthony Hokema writes this, When one sees a human being, one ought to see in him or her a certain reflection of God. In the creation of man, God revealed himself in a unique way by making someone who was a kind of mirror image of himself. No higher honor could have been given to man than the privilege of being made in the image of God. Now, I just find that to be an incredible thought. Because when you look at it, all of the creation and the beauty and the creativity and the complexity of it all, for whatever reason, God looked at humanity and said, this humanity is going to be unique among it all. Now, you might not know this about me. Maybe you do. But when I was being educated in college, my background was science. I studied ecological sciences, and I loved looking at all the different levels of biology, whether you're in a microbiology class or you're looking at something down to the genetics level of DNA, um, or you're in a class where you're looking at animals like ichthyology or the plant world, plant taxonomy, or even the human body, human anatomy. It was all incredible, and it showed us something about who we are and the intricacies of ourselves. Now, when you're looking at all of this, you can go down one of two roads. Uh, One road is you can take the secularist, humanist approach as you look at it all. And I would submit to you that when you go down that road, that human dignity is not preserved. R.C. Sproul said it like this, 
The humanist exalts the virtues of honesty, justice, compassion, but he must crucify his mind to do it. The other road is the road of derived dignity. Derived dignity from God. And, And when we go down this road, what we do instead of diminishing human dignity as we marvel at it like David did. David said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor. Do you know that the word dignity comes out of the concept of glory in the Bible? Glory. It's something that is attributed to God, and all creatures throughout creation reflect glory in some way. Now, the Latin, when it talks about this Bible concept of glory, has two words that it uses to describe it. One word is gloria, and we just sang about that, didn't we? The other word, though, might sound familiar to It's dignitas. Dignitas. Now, the ancient Hebrews, when they thought of things or words, they were more concrete than abstract in their thinking. They liked word pictures as opposed to kind of complex thoughts that are abstract, right? And so, when they would uh, make a word, it it tended to have something you could think of in the known universe. And so, when they made this word glory, it came from the root of the word weightiness. So what they were saying about God when God has glory is they were saying that God was weighty or heavy. Now, mind you, they were not saying that God needed to lose some weight. They're not thinking of weight in terms of pounds. No, they were talking about weight in terms of significance, that God is substantial that he's solid in his essence, that he's permanent, and that no other creature is like him. But that helps us then to understand where our value comes from, our dignity. Because if God is all of that, and God chooses to assign it to us, then we can make statements like, all people matter. My glory is derived It didn't come to me because of something I did or some way I look or where I was born. But it came to me because I'm reflecting the one who himself is substantial and weighty and glorious. So I have dignity. Now, as you might have imagined, this this message of humanity, it spread like wildfires. The Christian message spread like wildflowers. The message of Jesus was shared. Men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, learned this common mantra among the Christian church that we are all one in Christ. We all have equality that is shared in dignity and value. And as this message went out, as people heard that Jesus was born, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross in their place, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, things began to change around the world. And that message continues to this day. I've been thinking about the modern mission movement, and as Christianity has gone into parts of the world where it had not previously been, 
so has come the message of human dignity and human rights. And get this, missionaries have protected native peoples from exploitation and injustices. They've played a significant role in abolishing forced labor in the Congo and, and resisting a, a practice which was called blackbirding, which was a practice of enslaving South Pacific Islanders in the 19th and 20th centuries. They fought for human rights in combating uh, opium and foot-binding, exposing baby girls in China. They waged war against widow-burning, infanticide, temple prostitution in India. Now, I am not saying today that Christians have always gotten it right, because they've departed sometimes from their DNA. But when the Christian witness is faithful to the message of God, they get it right. You see, church... Human rights, human dignity is our DNA. It's who we are. It's, it's one of our main messages that we have to offer to the world. And, and if we ever get away from that message, I would submit to you then we are not looking like the Jesus who came into the world whose message we are proclaiming. Which means this then, if human dignity is one of the greatest gifts that past Christians have given to the world then we must understand it's our job to keep giving this gift to the world. Now, how might we do this? I think sometimes we try to get too big picture when we're thinking about something as consequential as human rights and human dignity, and we go to all of the global problems around the world. But I want to frame this through a, 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 an expression that maybe you've read in a or a gift shop or something like that. Have you ever seen this sign? Everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change the toilet paper roll. I mean, isn't that true? You, you, you think about that, and you put it into this context, right? Everybody likes the idea of virtue signaling. I want to save lost puppies in Ecuador. But here's the problem. There's also lost puppies at your local shelter. You see, saying that I care about an unknown quantity, such as victims in places where I have never been and probably will never go, means less when I'm willing to extend care to the known quantity, which is my next-door neighbor. You see why Jesus, when he was talking about the value of love, made it so practical and so personal? He said, look next door and love that person first. Start by changing the toilet paper roll and then go out and save the world. Now, it's both and what I'm talking about here. You don't just do one, you do both and. What, what might that look like? Well, in the Bible, as it talks about extending the gift of human dignity to others, the Bible often uses a word called honor, extend honor to others. Honor is regularly spoken of in the church, outdo one another by showing honor, Romans 12, to our officials and bosses and leaders over us. Honor those in authority, Romans 13, in our home. Honor your father and your mother, Exodus chapter 20. Now, again, honor is not something that is just gesture-laden, okay? We don't just get up and say, I'm handing someone a plaque today because they're a really good person, right? No, honor is a gift that I am to be extending to people in my spheres day after day. I am to be sensitive to the self-esteem of others, 
R.C. Sproul says this, honoring and respecting others admits to a realization that the most fragile mechanism on this planet is the human ego and to a corresponding awareness that most, the most potent weapon against the ego, the ego is the human tongue. Now, let's just get personal and practical around this. How are you thinking of that that worker that was having a really bad day and you don't know what their day looked like, but they were a little short with you at the cash register. What does it look like when you know that person down the road has made you offended as you're driving? How do you respond to them? What does it look like in that context? Let's get even a little more personal. We've just gone through a very vitriolic political season and our country is sharply divided, how are you thinking about the opposition right now? Or let's get even more personal. How are you going to talk to your family around the Christmas tree this year? Especially as things get tense. You see, this message of human dignity actually starts here at this level. And remember, as we're extending dignity to others, it has nothing to do with what they have to offer or how I feel about them. Dignity is derived so I can appreciate the dignity of every life, whether it's a preborn life or whether it's someone who's in elderly care right now, those who deal with physical limitations, mental limitations, or those who are currently struggling with addictions. Sometimes it's easy to write them off and dehumanize them. Or what about this category of person that's the easiest to dehumanize? My enemy. The next time you're struggling with a person, I want you to do something. I want you to pause and think of Genesis 1.27, made in the image of God. I want you to humanize them. And then start thinking about them, and then start talking to them. Now let's think about this as a local church for just a minute. What happens when many of us begin changing the toilet paper roll? Well, I would suggest to you that that adds up. You know, local gospel-saturated churches must advance the cause of human dignity and human rights through social action. Now, I'm not going to get into this implication very deeply because we're running out of time and uh, you're running out of energy, but next week or two weeks from now, Harry is going to be Speaking into this more, he's going to cover the topics of mercy and benevolence as gifts that Christ brought into the world. And as we were exchanging emails, I said, Harry, my job is summarize, 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 and I'm going to tell them that you're cleaning up all the mess and filling in all the gaps from here. But I do want to say this, that sometimes we can kind of create this false tension or dichotomy when it comes to evangelism and social action. We can say, that if we focus on one, then we're going to forget about the other. But what I'm going to argue is that you can't forget about either. You have to do both. Listen to this quote. Personal salvation without neighbor love is an incomplete gospel. And social justice without individual transformation is powerless. So thank the Lord 
uh, we are about to leave the year 2020 and head into the year 2021. And as we get there as a church, we're going to be going through a series that I'm calling The Master's Plan. We're going to be looking at principles of leadership from the life of Jesus. And as we look at this series, I will be arguing that this is what Jesus did to unleash the church upon the world. A lot of us, when we sit in church Sunday after Sunday, we might ask the question, am I a leader? And the answer is, yes, absolutely you are a leader. Because God has given us all spheres of influence, relationships, where we can influence people, bring impact into their lives and into their world. And that's the master's plan. The master's plan was to unleash the church for the good of people, for human flourishing, and for God's glory. So as we think about that, here's what I'm going to end with. You know, while society wants to put Christmas on lockdown, Jesus on lockdown, our job is the antithesis of that. Our job is to unleash the message of Jesus into the world by advancing the cause of human dignity as one outflow of that message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful to you for your holy word and the implications of your word. Lord, your word speaks to all areas of life. It is robust. It is full. And one of those areas is, is the, the dignity of the human that is derived from the glory of God. So, Father, I pray for us this Christmas season that we would be reminded and that our eyes would be lifted up in the midst of all of the difficulties, whether it's COVID restrictions or family struggles, that we carry a message that is brilliant, that is glorious, that is worth sharing, a message that involves the salvation of humans from sin and the elevation of humans from whatever people experienced before the Christian message to the human dignity that we really appreciate today. Help us to be carriers of that message into the world still today. Let us keep giving that gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.